Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... It's not simply the case of us prescribing the best available or the best evidence treatment. Our job, our skill lies in collaboratively discussing what is the best for you in this particular scenario, given the way you are presenting today in my clinic. Professor Subodh Dave discusses person-centered care and psychiatry, some key perspectives. My name is Hamilton Moran, and I'm joined by Sachin Shah. Hi. And today, Sachin is going to be interviewing Professor Subodh Dave about his co-written article titled Person-Centered Care and Psychiatry, Some Key Perspectives. And it's important to note that this article is in itself based upon a report for the Royal College of Psychiatrists entitled Person-Centered Care, Implications for Training in Psychiatry. So what was that about? So this report, broadly, addresses the increasing focus on person, not just patient, person-focused care throughout medicine and psychiatry's potential to lead in this area. And it also addresses the present deficit of reference to person-centered practice in the psychiatric training curricula. So the report found that psychiatric training wasn't meeting the demands of person-centered care? Is that? Well, in, in some ways. So just to give some examples, there were several quite important terms that were found to be missing from the core curriculum of the Royal College at the time. And these terms included co-production, values, personalization, personal budgets, Surprisingly, ethics, which was um, missing, and human rights, as well as self-care or self-directed care. So ethics was and, not in the core curriculum when they did the scoping review? Well, according to the report itself, it seems that the term specifically was absent from the core curriculum, which, I mean, personally came as quite a large surprise, given how fundamental ethics are to medical education at, at any stage of one's training. That is a surprise, and that, and unfortunately, I clicked on the link to the the core curriculum that they were looking at, and it's a four hundred four link, obviously, because Royal College has updated their website and they've updated the curriculum uh, as well. So uh, I will never know. I'm sure I trained on a core curriculum of that era, but I can't for the life of me remember if ethics was in there or not. It is now, uh, but yeah, interesting. Uh, might there be a way to find an archive version of the? Uh page somewhere i don't know if there's Maybe, any listeners uh, listening and want to send me a 2016 edition of the core curriculum i'd love to see it <laughs> it was also because i've mentioned that certain terms were found to be missing it was also the case that from surveys of trainees in psychiatry it was found that there were some gaps in learning objectives and also availability of training opportunities related to person-centered care and this was despite a strong desire for its inclusion both from trainers and the trainees themselves. So basically, everyone seems to want person-centered care, and that's including trainees, all the way up to the World Psychiatric Association and the World Health Organization, and it's just a case of implementing it within the training program. Absolutely. Several global health bodies have put out material explaining the benefits of person-centered care, and broadly, it can be seen to benefit not only patients themselves, but clinicians and larger systems as well as, as a whole. What is person-centred care? Well, I'm glad you asked, Sachin. 
In 2014, the Health Foundation defined person-centered care as being composed of four main elements. The first being affording people dignity, compassion, and respect. The second being offering coordinated care, support, or treatment. The third being offering personalized care, support, or treatment. And the fourth being supporting people to recognize and develop their own strengths and abilities to enable them to live an independent and fulfilling life. So probably the best way to think of it is the recommendations that the scoping review made for the curriculum, like what they think how the curriculum should adapt. What did the scoping review suggest? Well, there were several quite nicely detailed recommendations put forward by the review. And in terms of the changes that are recommended for the curriculum, it suggested that the language of the curriculum should reflect its person-centered nature and that this should bear in mind several things, including the need to recognize that patients are people first and people's lived experience of mental health challenges occur in the lived experience of their life as a whole. It also says that one needs to bear in mind the need to afford people dignity, compassion and respect, and provide a collaborative or co-productive approach to decision-making, as well as offering coordinated care, support or treatment, and offering personalised care, support or treatment. So basically a Mm. lot of taking into account the needs, wants, desires, concerns, aims, goals, recovery, trajectory of the person that you're working with. So what's the article in the BJ Psych International about? The article itself is about why we should be focusing on person-centred care, how it can help patients, clinicians, and clinical services at large, and how ultimately it should be an integral part of psychiatric training. And so now we have Professor Subod Dabe. Over to the interview. Hi, I'm Subodh. I'm a Kassel psychiatrist in Derbyshire, and uh, half my role is involved in teaching undergraduate medical students at the University of Nottingham. We try to develop an ethos of experiential learning at uh, the University of Nottingham. So rather than focusing solely on knowledge, skills, and attitudes like traditional programs are, we focused on providing experiences. And part of that experience, I think, because we all know that we learn really very well from our own experience. And I think for us, getting our patients' experience into the curriculum, into the educational program was quite important. So we developed a program where we have about 50 expert patients involved in teaching our medical students. And so that received such a warm response from medical students of all the things that we do, not just in psychiatry, but across the the whole program, the whole MBBS program. This is one thing that gets the highest ratings. So uh, we realized that students really like the fact they could interact with patients in this way and learn directly from patients. Uh, Because one of the things that we in psychiatry have, have got used to over the last few years is to think about teaching empathy almost as a third person. So in case we do this all the time, right? We've got a checklist and we comment about somebody's empathy. And I think in reality, empathy is such a interpersonal thing. And I think um, rather than a third person commenting about empathy, we felt that 
having a direct interaction between the patient and our medical students was, was quite important. So that's what we facilitated. And that got me thinking more about this whole idea of person-centered care. Mm-hmm. So we've had a whole lot of things. I think when you look at it, you know, I think um, compassionate care, intelligent kindness. So I realized that there were lots of different things that were trying to occupy the same conceptual space. And yet there was lack of clarity about what it actually meant in terms of training, in terms of assessments. So when we are, when we are training our students, when we are training our trainees, uh, you know, when they pass the MR psych exam, what does it mean? Um, I was also involved in curriculum development in my educator role. And as a part of the curriculum committee, we did a survey of all our members. This was a few years ago. And almost 800 people responded to the survey. And about half of them said that um, that psychiatry was just failing to, psychiatry training was failing to produce people who could establish therapeutic relationships. And that the skill to connect with another individual, to form that therapeutic rapport, to really connect with the person rather than just a diagnosis or a, a pigeonholed uh, category was quite important. And so I really wanted to bring all these various elements together under one conceptual umbrella. So I spoke to Jed, who's been a leading light in the field of person-centered care. And we involved colleagues from from psychotherapy, medical psychotherapy, from uh, the spirituality uh, special interest group, from the philosophy special interest group. We got trainees involved. And crucially and quite importantly, I think given my background in working with patients in a co-produced model, we had patient and carer representatives right from the very start, including, and I think this is quite important as well, we had doctors with lived experience of mental illness too. So as a group, I think we had such a diverse range of experience in that room. And it took us a while to kind of try and figure out exactly uh, what what this meant. But the outcome of that hard work from this diverse group of people was the report, like a dossier is called CR215, CR215. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, it's it's the, one of the college reports on person-centered care, um, uh, talking about how do we embed persons into care in our training and assessment. And I urge people to have a look at the report because it's actually, and I would say so, but I think uh, there's a feedback we've had that it's quite readable. It's not one of those hard to digest reports. And it essentially captures some of the key points that we need to incorporate in our training and assessment strategies. And so this is the recent report from the Royal College of Psychiatrists Person-Centered Training and Curriculum Scoping Group. That's right. Okay. So we formed the scoping group and the scoping group met a few times. And this was obviously in the pre-COVID era. So we were able to meet at the college. And we also carried out a little survey of our members, trainees and trainers to try and understand what did person-centered care mean to them. I think for different people, it meant different things. And I think we were trying to try and be clear about what exactly were we saying when we talked about training issues specifically. Could we just discuss what person-centered care is? The definition in one of your cited articles by uh, Donald Berwick says that it should be defined as the experience to the extent the informed individual patient desires it of transparency, individualization, recognition, respect, dignity, 
and choice in all matters without exception related to one person's circumstances and relationship in healthcare. And I think the other one to bring up would be the World Health Organization's definition of it, which they put within their glossary uh, of one of their reports as, it's an approach to care that consciously adopts individuals, carers, families, and communities' perspectives as participants in and beneficiaries of trusted health systems that respond to their needs and preferences in humane and holistic ways. This was one of the issues we faced. I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a great fan of Wittgenstein who, who said that, that meaning resides in usage, you know. And, and, and we can define things uh, in great detail, but ultimately it, it really is about how we use that. And I think I, I'd like uh, people who are listening to this to, to do a simple thought experiment that how would things be different if you, uh, if we, you know, as, as, as professionals were to be treated by our doctors or our nurses as persons rather than patients? What would, what would change? And for me as well, I think when I started this uh, scoping group, I think it initially started as a patient-centered care thing, and I was using that phrase as well. I think college had recently switched from uh, using service users to patients, mm-hmm. and so we started with patient-centered care. And I think I moved to person-centered care because I got it. And I think, to me, I think the central difference, as we outline in the article, is that when we say patient-centered care, ultimately you might be taking into account the person's social, psychobiosocial, you know, factors, you might be thinking of their strengths, you might be taking a very recovery-focused approach, but still all in the service of the patient's diagnosis, the treatment plan, and that's the key agenda. And then that shapes your interaction with the patient. When you say person-centered care, then the agenda is not shaped by that. The agenda is shaped collaboratively between the two of you, thinking, well, what is it that you want? Mm-hmm. You've come to me as a professional for help. What is it that you want? And I think this will chime with people because we know that not everybody who comes to a clinic actually wants or even accepts that diagnosis, right? So sometimes to keep the diagnosis as the, or the treatment plan as the central focal point of our interaction is simply misplaced because then there is no match between what our patients want and what we want. And that in many ways is part of the problems that we face as psychiatrists particularly because we have you know the mental health act so in psychiatry it's not just it's not a voluntary interaction we at times detain our patients so it's especially important for us to kind of realize and recognize that fact that we need to not reduce our patients to diagnostic categories we need to think of them as the whole And so this mention of the fact that we detain our patients is, you know, referencing the oppressiveness of, well, medicine in general, uh, psychiatry. uh, And this is where you came to mention that in the second half of the 20th century and onwards, there's been a move towards respecting autonomy of patients. The implication being that patients gained more autonomy in this half of the century. What is the cultural driver for this? Why did things change? So I think there are two or three main drivers. I think uh, clearly there has been a general move towards a a reduction in the power differential between authority figures and uh, those who are disempowered. Uh, This is a general reflection in society, and I think that's been reflected in in medicine between doctors and patients generally. 
Um, so that's one thing. I think for psychiatry specifically, I think there has been an understanding and, and uh, well, and science generally, a, a more of a humble approach, recognizing that science does not equate to certainty. And I think we need to be aware of the expertise that people bring about themselves when they come to us for clinical help. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have the professional expertise, but our patients have the expertise about their own life and about their own stories. And I think, again, people will relate to this when we think about how we actually make clinical decisions in our clinics. So in our patient clinics, we obviously rely on you know guidelines or best practice evidence. When we start applying it to individuals, that's when we face a problem because we realize that applying evidence from population-based studies to individuals requires that tailoring approach. We have to tailor that evidence to the individual in front of us. And tailoring it to that individual then takes into account their values, their expectations, their likes, their preferences, and indeed what they want from their own lives. And that then becomes an important discussion to have because it's not simply the case of us prescribing robotically what is the best available or the best evidence treatment. Our job, our skill lies in collaboratively discussing what is the best for you in this particular scenario, given the way you are presenting today in my clinic. And that discussion, I think skillful clinicians do that. And I think we need to make sure that our training equips all practitioners to be able to do that uh, so that we can deliver truly individualized, truly personalized care. So that's the other big driver, I feel. And I think in many ways, I think in the 21st century, that is going to be the main driver. We all have got used to having personalized services, you know, services that are tailored specifically to our needs. So, you know, we all have our digital apps, et cetera, which can be customized to you specifically. And I think uh, personalized medicine is making big strides. And in many ways, psychiatry, I think, is streets ahead. And we should be reclaiming that title of us. The reason why we are able to deliver that personalized care to individuals is because we've always thought of people as a whole. So this is not new to us. I think thinking about people's individual circumstances, their personality traits, the particular social environment they live in has always been important to us. And we know that that shapes the way they engage with treatment, that shapes the way they accept treatment, that shapes the way they actually see the treatment. And more thinking in, in a, from biological terms, we know that epigenetics plays such a big role. And, and so I think as scientists, as clinical practitioners, it actually makes total sense for us to be genuinely person-centered care. And we can see from other branches of medicine that that's where the rest of medicine is going now. I think, I mean, personalized medicine in oncology, in metabolic disorders, it's all taking into account psychosocial factors. And we need to be proud of what we're doing here. And this gets us to your comment that psychiatry is inherently person-centered. As you say, we view the person as a whole. But the danger is that we do focus on categorization and uh, labeling and diagnosis. And that, as you mentioned, this has led to stigmatization and marginalization. What role do you think diagnosis does have within a person-centered care model? So... That's a good question, Sachin. I think the distinction between diagnosis and the debate between diagnosis versus formulation, I think, is an age-old debate. And I think that will continue. I think part of this comes from our desire to prove that we are real doctors. And so we are working in the medical way like all our other colleagues are, so that we have a clear diagnostic framework, that our diagnoses are reliable and that they have validity, etc. 
and, and sometimes people challenge that. But going back to my previous answer, I think the reality is that the rest of medicine is moving towards and should move towards where psychiatry is. I think real medicine lies in providing real help to real people. And that will come if we are able to personalize our treatment approaches, personalize our formulations. And so I've had this issue when I've gone to a orthopedic surgeon. I'm a marathon runner. And so, you know, having niggles in my foot is, is a normal thing for me. And what you want is not a study that has been done on 100 people, which doesn't actually capture your story. I would much rather have a treatment that is personalized to my specific issue. And then, and you find that sometimes you go through a whole series of treatments before finding somebody who's willing to do that for you. And I had the personal experience as well. And I think that if we have to start thinking about adopting formulations, I mean, we realize that that approach is applicable across medicine. I mean, we talk about that in psychiatry, but what is formulation is actually recognizing that there are predisposing factors, there are perpetuating factors, there are factors that precipitate illnesses, and they reside in all the domains, psychological, biological, and social. So it's kind of really having that holistic thinking. And I genuinely feel that we want the whole of medicine to move that way, rather than thinking that we need to move towards medicine by going for simple black and white categorizations. Because we know that these black and white categorizations generally don't work in medicine. I think I get medical students asking me this all the time, and I challenge them that, like, does a level of sodium, which is 135, straight away mean that it is abnormal? What is normal? How do we decide that? And then you start getting the whole discussion on confidence intervals. So there is a, a nuanced discussion to be had about what is what is that category? How do you decide what is illness and what is not illness? How do you decide something is a diagnosis and something is not? And I feel that psychiatry has a lot to offer, and we as psychiatric practitioners should be claiming this territory. Now, when we think about, especially viewing this internationally, that we are at risk of ignoring, you say, key aspects of subjective experiences of culture, ethnicity, political oppression, and trauma. And you mentioned, you know, that we require a knowledge of the person's social, cultural, and spiritual context. Why are these things important? So I think essentially the point we're making is that the person's personhood matters. The personal identity of the individual is quite important. And again, if we think of ourselves going into a doctor's office, I think we want to be treated as persons, as individual people with our own personalities coming into, into play. Um, our communities are an important part of that identity. And so if we ignore that social, cultural context, I think we really lose an important element of information. And all skilled practitioners are aware of that, which is why we always try and understand the socio-cultural context that the person brings into our clinic so that we can tailor our discussions, our treatment strategies to that. And as you say, this is relevant internationally because psychiatry is often criticized for having a Western-centric model that is then imposed almost in a neo-colonial way across the world. And I think that we hopefully are moving away from that. But I think, again, having a person-centered approach is the best way of tackling that, is taking care of that. And for me, I think this is something that I've personally experienced because I'm an international medical graduate myself. I trained in India. And when I came to the UK, what was good was that I felt that what I'd learned in psychiatry was very much applicable here in the UK. I found that there were many, many things that were universal. So I came across universal human themes, that themes of loss, themes of 
emotional responses like sadness and anxiety were, were same and it was in a way such a it almost seemed wondrous you know to see that that human beings on two different continents were still very very similar for me it was my first experience of coming abroad and to see that was quite wondrous but there are differences as well and i think as you start working with the communities you realize that the values of the community the ethos of the community does shape the way you think behave and interact with other people and those nuances matter and i think good skilled practitioners take into account those nuances and i think that's where i feel that a person's led approach is actually that approach is universal which allows that tailoring based on which part of the world you reside in which part of which communities that you work in because it's not even countries i mean uk is a good example we are so multicultural that in different parts of uk itself you find that you have to work differently and I, i'm sure most clinicians like myself who work in inner city areas know this because you know no two patients are the same you might get you know where i work in derby we get people from bosnia people from somalia pakistan india you know and of course people from high peaks and people from derby city and it's all a bit different and we have to tailor it to the person in front of us just staying on the international perspective because we started in the article by talking about world health organization highlighting the need for person centered care with regards to the rise of prevalence of long term and mental health conditions and strain on human and financial resources internationally and so the world health organization said uh, in the report that you referenced that populations are living longer and the burden of costly long term chronic conditions and preventable illnesses that require multiple complex interventions over many years continues to grow and they in this report then posit person centered care which has many different tenets and uh, aspects as the solution to this do you see person centered care as a virtue in itself that it would matter regardless of whether it helped service provision or is it a pragmatic solution to the growing need for services in a resource strapped world so that's a great question sachin what what you're essentially saying i think is that on the one hand is the moral imperative is the virtue of recognizing people's autonomy and utilizing that principle in our interactions with people so that we recognize that people bring their own expertise and we bring our professional expertise and there's a collaborative discussion there's a shared decision making and on the other hand is this idea about self management especially in relation to chronic illnesses and and that people are able to think and and conceptualize and then actually implement treatment strategies for themselves maybe with the support of of professionals i don't think they both are mutually exclusive but to answer your question directly i do feel that person centered care as, as an approach is a virtue in itself because look at this scenario i think going back to the cultural thing i think let me cite another example to you because personhood a lot of people are often say to me that does personhood then mean that you will never actually tell people what you think because mm-hmm. we all get this in clinic right where people tell me but doctor what tell me what do you think what would you choose so you you give people asking to make an informed choice and then you people sometimes flip that back to you and occasionally i think practitioners kind of if they are thinking that i must work in an autonomy centered way i can't then express but that would not be person centered person centered is actually working with the person in front of you and i think that is recognizing that some people 
are actually wanting that answer from you. Nothing's recognizing that that is what is needed in that moment. This is the worry that people have, that using their autonomy, we then somehow withdraw from giving care. We somehow disengage, leaving that business of care to the person. And I think that's a real worry, and I think I can understand why. So which is why all those words are important, person-centered care. I think we are in the profession of being doctors because we care. We want to care for our patients. I don't think we can lose that. But it is caring within that framework where we recognize that people are individuals with their own preferences and choices. And then sometimes that choice will mean that they will want more from you. Sometimes that will mean that they will want less from you and will be more willing to do this new thing of self-management, which I think is important. I think it does have a pragmatic value. And I think we will see more and more of that. And I don't think that we need to be shying away from that. I think this gets us on to how well we as psychiatrists do practice shared decision making. Your, I keep saying your, but your co-authored paper <laughs> references a study which measured shared decision processes in uh, psychiatry. What it took away was that psychiatrists tend to be good at checking if patient has any questions at the end, like at that level. But there's meta levels at which we don't do so well at, which is, for example not asking how the patient wants to receive information, not asking uh, how involved the patient wants to be. And what it said was that psychiatrists tend to argue that, no, I mean, we don't need to ask. We just intuit this. We we know. <laughs> we can tell. Uh, although it seems as like evidence is lacking for whether we actually know this or not. The other point that you made is that we tend to just over-evaluate within ourselves how good we are at this uh, collaborative consultation and treatment planning. The other study that you referenced as well looked at training psychiatrists specifically in communication skills with patients with psychosis. And obviously the ones who received the training then had a better score of shared understanding. Um, So are you identifying basically a requirement for training? So two things. First of all, I think... um... I am sure the article didn't come across like that. Uh, Jared and I were very clear about that and the whole scoping group was. Uh, but just to reiterate that this, uh, I or uh, indeed any of the person-centered care practitioners would not be coming at it from a sanctimonious point of view that we know how person-centered we are. The reality is that we all, this is a dynamic thing, right? So um, I'm sure I write, I've written about this, but there are days when I'm less person-centered than ideally I would like to be. And so, you know, I think that's the nature of our work. I think that, that there will be certain interactions where we just can't be as person-centered as, uh, as, as we want to be, or there are particular days when we, we you know, uh, depending on what's going on in our, in our personal professional lives. So I'm not definitely coming at it from a, a sanctimonious point of view. Um, but there needs to be a space for reflection for all of us. I think, I think like we quoted in the article, the reality is that um, we tend to overestimate our ability to form those shared decisions with our patients. We spend far too much time in the clinic thinking about diagnosis and treatment than actually thinking about what the person wants. And that may well be a reflection of the fact that we have very limited amount of time with our patients and we have to maximize that. But that does have a consequence because we all know that, for example, non-compliance is such a major issue. Compliance improves if you actually have a shared decision, if you have a shared formulation 
And this comes to the fore, I think, when we work, uh, certainly in my practice I've seen, when we work with people with personality disorders, I've seen that so often that relationship with our patients can become combative, adversarial. And yet, if you agree and uh, focus on the areas of agreement, then we can start changing something about the treatment pathway and then treatment outcomes. And so I feel that it's a, it's, it's an approach that we all need to reflect upon. I think peer groups can be a great way to think about it and, 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 and to sharpen our practice in this area. So I think training, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we all just need to go to there's a particular course that we can you know just go to. And, and I think this is much more of a philosophical approach, firstly, and a scientific approach. I think it's recognizing that focusing on the person has value, has value, not just a moral value, but also, as we've discussed, a treatment value, a utilitarian value, a pragmatic value in terms of improving the outcomes for our patients. And I think if we think of that, then I think that will subtly, but in a significant way, change the focus of our interaction with our patients and indeed of our training. And I, I do this with my medical students all the time. I say that when you go into an OSCE, if you are given a scenario of managing delirium, say, and, you know, students love this. They've been taught this, right? So they all say, I will manage delirium in a psychobiosocial way. So they all come up with that kind of answer. But students who are doing this in a bookish way will answer the question, thinking about how to treat delirium in a psychobiosocial way. So then it's thinking about, okay, we'll have more signs and lighting, better lighting in the room and haloperidol, lorazepam, all of that stuff. But good students will take into account, where is this patient? And whether the patient is in the psychiatric ward, whether the patient is in the MAU, medical assessment unit, or in the emergency department, or in the GP clinic, that matters. And then you find that then the treatment strategy varies. So this is a very simple thing, but just recognizing that the context matters. Otherwise, we are giving a bookish answer to how to manage delirium, not how to help this person who has delirium. And that's a significant but subtle shift. And I think the more we all remind ourselves of that, the better our treatment will get, the better our patient's outcomes will be. And I think overall, it will lead to a far less adversarial relationship that unfortunately, psychiatry sometimes has with our patients, you know. In terms of appreciating the philosophical underpinnings of person-centered care, like we now are on to your key facets of person-centered approaches. And the first one is rights. And just prior to that, you mentioned that therapeutic alliance and co-production in the therapeutic relationship is basically a focus on justice and fairness. And the place where I think we as psychiatrists come up against a wall with this is when we have to detain people, when we have to treat people against their will. But you basically say that we should keep in mind knowledge of human rights, relevant legislation, and consider proportionality in applying such legislation. What does it mean to be proportional? Like, how, how does that affect practice? So, let me give you a concrete example. I think we wrote an article about this as well, about community treatment orders. So, we know that CTOs, community treatment orders, have dramatically increased in number. Their numbers have increased, and we all have a fair few patients who are on CTOs in the community. Now, the whole premise of CTOs is that if the person doesn't follow the treatment plan, then there is the power of recall, right? Now, I've found, and I think a lot of my colleagues find, that actually when you work in a person-centered way, it is possible 
for at least a proportion of patients. I'm not saying that for all the patients, for a proportion of patients to actually have a shared care plan that if things get worse, if symptoms worsen, if there are signs of relapse and these are the signs of relapse, then the likelihood is that I might need to come into hospital. And if that happens, then maybe we'll arrange for a mental health assessment. Now, you realize that all that the CTO provides is just a legal framework for that very discussion. So you don't really need a legal power to have that discussion. So, of course, there will always be a small number of patients for whom that legal power is needed, and that's the only way of doing it, maybe. But you find that actually to have a discussion with someone, thinking ahead of what would happen, what are the possibilities if things worsen, if symptoms worsen, and that we should be doing as good clinicians anyway, right? And I think you find that that is where the whole nature of proportionality comes in. I think that if we think about the care plans with our patients, think about the various possibilities in the future, various options, and the kind of doing options appraisal with them, and getting other key stakeholders involved, then you find that there is a shared ownership of the care plan, there's a shared understanding of the care plan, and then there's less of uh, pointing the blame uh, or pointing the figure at someone else to blame another agency. Because you, you see this quite a lot, right? I think that especially when we are working in, in a kind of situation where there are multiple teams involved, you find that there's often a passing the buck from one team to another. And I think having that continuity of care, making that person the focus of your care, I think is quite a central principle. And I think that principle is enshrined in the Mental Health Act as well. So or in the Mental Capacity Act. So all those principles are, are very much in there. And so for us, I think in terms of training aspect, I think yeah, definitely I think we need to have a better understanding of the law, certainly human rights law and how it applies to the care of our patients and recognizing that understanding that proportionality means that we have to take into account the values of the person that we are working with and who's coming to our clinics. And so just because we have the power of using the Mental Health Act does not mean that uh, we actually use it. And I think that's an important element that I always say this to my medical students, that the criteria of, of the Mental Health Act detention are broader, right? So I think we could actually detain far more patients than we do detain. So we are always exercising our clinical judgment, mm -hmm. you know, and, and deciding. And then that includes the medical professionals and the approved mental health professionals involved. We're all exercising our professional judgment in deciding whether this is an appropriate thing to do or not. And so I think sharpening the professional judgment that takes into account that is this proportional i think is very important and have we exhausted other ways of managing this issue now the, the second uh, facet is relationship to practice and service organization and i think the key message within this is that practicing person-centered care will lead you to a recovery focused treatment which is you know what are the goals of the patient and what do they want to achieve and also take into account what are their strengths what is their context and their values to achieve a recovery focused model and that this would be co-designed with the patient i think the one thing you mentioned is that in co-designing treatment plans with patients with a recovery focus psychiatrists may be required to collaboratively agree with the treatments that current evidence would rate suboptimal. How would we be practicing as clinicians when we have to use treatments that we understand to be suboptimal? So that is the 
value conflicts that we have, right? I think we have this in clinic all the time. But I think, again, let's put ourselves in the shoes of our patients. So I used to work with Professor Fulford, who's a professor in philosophy and psychiatry, and he, he was my teacher. And he would quote this example, and, and we ran workshops together where we would ask groups of people that if you were being treated for cancer and there was a drug A that gave you five years extra lifespan, but had terrible side effects like A, B, and C, a drug B that would give you six months of extra lifespan, but did not have those side effects, A, B, and C. And you find that the room would be divided, you know? And I'm sure people listening in will also recognize that if you really have to make a choice, it's not as if there is one right answer to that question, that different people will make different choices based on their own life circumstance and based on their own personal values and circumstances. And so in reality, I think when we say what is the best evidence treatment, that is based on our research studies. We know what are the outcomes, et cetera. But that may not necessarily be the best treatment for that individual in front of us. For them, a particular side effect may be so abhorrent for them particularly that the best treatment and the possibility of having that side effect is just not okay for them. I think we have to respect that choice because you can recognize that you might be in the same situation and you might you might have chosen similarly. I see that in some of my patients. The possibility of weight gain, for example, as a side effect is quite, you know, not okay, even if it means that they have to reject a drug that is more likely to produce improvement. And so I feel that if we recognize that patient values have an important role in reaching clinical decisions as well, then I think this whole thing about suboptimal becomes less of a value conflict for us. Mm. It, it is then recognizing that actually to reach clinical decisions, we have to bring in three elements. And I think, interestingly, when David Sackett came up with this whole idea of evidence-based practice, he'd always envisage these three elements. And somewhere along the lines, that has got lost and we just got stuck with evidence-based practice. But he always envisaged it as the evidence that is derived from populations, the individual patients' values and expectations and preferences, and the individual clinicians' expertise and experience. And in reality, I think we need to be always bringing in those three elements for an individual's clinical decision. And that's what person-centered care is about. So, so you can see that it's not a new thing. This should have been evidence-based practice, but somehow in blindly following NICE guidelines without taking into account the other two elements, because people sometimes feel that they are robots and they're just following nice guidance without actually using their own clinical experience and expertise. That was never meant to be the case. Mm. We were always meant to use our expertise. We were always meant to apply. If an individual particularly doesn't want sedation as a side effect, then we will try and choose something that will not cause sedation, right? I mean, that is exactly what we would do. So a lot of this is common sense. I think when it's put as that, that this may mean choosing a suboptimal treatment, it kind of stands stark and it takes us aback. But mm. in reality, I would think that most clinicians are already doing that. I should think so, because that is the nature of our work. We, we tend to do that always. It's suboptimal from the evidence-based point of view, from a research evidence point of view, definitely not suboptimal for the person in front of us. The other facet which actually interested me was that practicing person-centered care is good for us as well. Uh, as clinicians. Um, but you, you phrase it in two different ways. And one is that we are more comfortable doing this and that we sit well with treating people with dignity and compassion and respect and viewing people as people. And it's what we want to do. We want to help people live their lives in a fulfilling way in which they choose to live. 
And the other aspect is the fact that uh, we are viewed as people as well, and that our work should not lead us to burn out and lead us to perform suboptimally. So are these two different concepts or... So they are actually two different but related concepts. So I think let's look at training. I think so when you look at trainees, I think there's evidence from trainee surveys that trainees like placements where they feel that patient outcomes are better. So when you correlate services where patient outcomes are better, trainee satisfaction is higher in those placements. Now that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. I think and that's what it is related to partly. I think we know that person-centered care actually produces better outcomes and those better outcomes are then translated to better satisfaction. So I think that's one element of it. But the second element is generally about the culture. I think having that culture of compassion, of care, I think then allows that same principle of compassionate care to be extended to ourselves. So, you know, we know that burnout in medicine is a huge issue. Now, I know it's kind of being talked about a lot more and and probably some people listening may even feel that this is all another hype, you know, that we've been doing medicine for decades and this was never the case. But the reality is that mental illness amongst doctors, and I say doctors, you know, mental illness doesn't just affect psychiatrists, it's all doctors, all of us, and indeed all healthcare workers, is common. And that shouldn't surprise us, you know, because we as psychiatrists know that, you know, as doctors, you're likely to come in close contact with morbidity, mortality, loss, so many stressful things. And, you know, and you won't send a person to visit a building site with a hard hat, but yet medical curricula have kind of assumed that you'll be okay going through whole of medicine and you'll somehow figure out on the way how to handle these things. And a lot of us do, but a lot of us don't. And I think that is the reality, is that, that for a lot of us, we just are expected to get on with it without actually having the tools to deal with the stresses. So I think creating that culture of compassion, that openness, that sense that individuals' values matter, individuals vary in the way they respond to these themes of loss, that some people will be more affected by, you know, mortality in their patients than others. You know, I think we've seen a report last year about how patient suicide affects trainees. I think these kind of things were just not talked about. You know, I think it was assumed that if a patient dies by suicide, doctors will just get on and be okay. And the reality is that maybe some are, maybe some are, but, but some aren't, you know, and I think we need to recognize that. And so I do feel that this concept of person-centered care, when we start applying it to ourselves as well, recognizing that we are people too, and that we have all the principles that we talked about person-centered care apply to us too, because we are no exception. We are just ordinary people. We are the same as our patients. We are humans. And I think that reduces the power differential between us and our patients, it also reduces that false dichotomy that we have, that not us and them, because we can be in the same position as our patients if we experience some of the things that they are doing. So I do feel that it's a broader issue about acknowledging that we are people too, and that persons and care principles apply to us as well. The final facet is training. I think the key thing that the article says is that a recent report from Royal College on training core trainees highlights that the current curricula they say, fails to explicitly outline capabilities and competencies related to person-centered care. And then you do go on to describe recommendations for training. What do you think we as a profession need to do to improve our person-centered care? So 
this refers to the old curricula and the good news is that we've got a new curriculum now and the new core curriculum and the new higher specialty curricula and they're all I have to say, are very person-centered, partly thanks to the work of the scoping group and the report, which has had a substantial influence on the content and the ethos of the curriculum, but also partly because the wider society, I think, has also moved on, I think, and GMC's uh, new framework, the Generic Professional Capabilities Framework, talks about that very issue, you know, about how can we as doctors make sure that everything we do has a person-centered care focus, that people are not treated as objects or collections of symptoms or diagnoses, but as people with individual values and preferences. So I think that element has helped the new curriculum. But I think we should, again, be humble and recognize that our old curriculum didn't mention any of these things. I think old curriculum had competencies like psychoeducation, where we will teach our patients and carers and educate them about stuff, you know, and I really feel that there's a lot that we need to learn from our patients. And I think that that needs to be any good curriculum. We'll, we'll talk about that. And I think that's where I started from saying that for me, I think that setting up our experiential learning model where people's lived experience was an integral part. So when we teach about schizophrenia, it's me as an expert, professional expert, talking about the pathophysiology of the dopamine receptors and the psychopharmacology of our antipsychotic medication and stuff like that. We also have someone with lived experience of schizophrenia bringing in their personal experience of what it means to have that diagnosis. What does it mean to have this medication? And what does it mean to actually experience the pathophysiology that I'm talking about? And that brings to life for our students an understanding of what it is. What does it mean to have these abnormalities with our dopamine receptors or with other chemicals or having these chemicals in our body? So... I feel that there is a genuine change that we can bring about in our training models where we recognize that teaching about the science is absolutely important. We can't be good doctors without kind of understanding our receptors and genetics and all of that, but also understanding the human experience and the impact on the human of the diagnosis of the symptoms is very important part of our understanding too. And that we need to connect with that. We need to understand that and we need to make sure that that informs our understanding and our practice. And so what we've started in the undergraduate world, I feel definitely needs to happen in the postgraduate world. I think MRSI courses vary significantly in their content and indeed in the kind of extent to which lived experience is embedded in the delivery of the courses. I think when lived experience started, I think in a lot of the places, the model was almost sometimes, and I'm not saying this about any particular course, but I know when I started doing this 13, 14 years ago in Derby and Nottingham, the model was that a patient would be wheeled in to talk about their experience and then wheeled out. And I think we've gone beyond that. And that's why we use the phrase co-design and co-produce. The idea is that the curriculum itself, I think, needs to have that lived experience involved from the very start. You know, And how do we deliver that curriculum? How do we assess people on those capabilities? should all have that input, because I think that will make us better doctors overall. This is an aim, I guess, for the UK training program. How applicable do you think these values are internationally? Uh, so I have taught and I've been involved in teaching in many centers across the world. You know, I've been in the ex external examiner to Singapore, Sri Lanka, I regularly teach in India. I set up the postgraduate training program in Zambia. So I'm kind of familiar with um, how teaching programs work elsewhere. And... I think if we recognize person-centered approach for what it is, then it's not an imposition of any value. So I think sometimes people think that it's an imposition of the Western 
autonomy-centered value. Now, I hope that what I've said kind of makes clear that it's not really. I think it's actually thinking about what does a person want in front of you. It's not about imposing that, well, you must want what you want, you know. It's not saying that. And that has relevance, I think, like you say. So uh, in Zambia, for example, it's routine for families to be involved and for families to take a very active role and which then kind of sits at somewhat at odds with the more confidentiality and kind of more individual-centered practice that we are used to in the UK. And you see that that subtle distinction would still be okay with the person-centered care approach because then if the person wants to involve X, Y, and Z in their care, then the clinician kind of recognizes that that's what is needed and that's what they need to do. They work with the person. And so I feel that the approach is very much applicable internationally so long as we recognize that it's not an imposition of any particular value. Yeah, the broad value is that people know themselves and people have an understanding of what they want. But it also recognizes that sometimes people will come in and say that I want the experts or I want my family member to be involved in making that decision for me. And I think then we need to kind of listen to that person, you know, when they, when they say that. And I think that's absolutely true here as well. And partly, you know, these meta shared care principles that that other study brought up is that we should listen to how involved our patients want to be. And that's part of respecting their autonomy is that you will have even generationally patients who have different ideas of how involved they should be within the consultation. Absolutely. Having that dialogue is important, isn't it? I think having that conversation is key. Well, thank you so much for, for guiding me through this article and uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Is there anything that we haven't broached on that you feel needs to be mentioned or addressed? What I would say is that the article is a good distillation of the report and I'd like people to get involved. You know, I think um, the article ends by saying that we need to be thinking about training and assessment strategies. And for us as a group, I think that was the main focus. I think we wanted to really think about how do we bring this concept to life? How do we animate this? And I think this is not a new debate. I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure psychiatrists are asked all the time that can empathy be taught? And I think similarly, I think this question about can person-centered care actually be taught or learned? And I feel that that is up to us as psychiatrists and educators to kind of breathe life into this curriculum because the curriculum is now saying all of that. It's saying that, yeah, we should be person-centered, but what does that mean in practice? And so... I'd really like to hear from readers and viewers to see what their ideas are. How do we breathe life into this? How do we move from idea to action? So for all of us who are involved in this, and I think indeed for our patients and carers who are involved in this process, that idea of moving this concept to action is key. Well, Professor Subodave, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And so that was Professor Subodave. Again, I thank him for joining us. Hemi, what were your takeaways from that interview? I'm really keen to know what you think about person-centered care. Well, first of all, that was a fantastic interview with some really great answers from Professor Subar Dave. First off, I just want to say I really do like the distinction between patient-centered care and person-centered care. With Prof. Dave's point about that central difference being that there can historically with patient-centered care be a tendency to focus on a patient's diagnosis and, and treatment plan, which there is good reason for. But ultimately, the difference that is present in person-centered care is that the agenda is shared collaboratively between both parties. 
And it's important to remember that in any specialty, not everyone who comes in the clinic agrees with the diagnosis, but also in psychiatry in particular, that's even more important. And especially because of the Mental Health Act, patients are not always in the system voluntarily. Sachin, was there anything that really stuck out to you in particular? It really just made me reflect on how person-centered I am in my approaches. We all sort of look at the ethos of person-centered care because we all like to think that we ideally aim towards these ideals of person-centered care anyway. But certainly one of the research papers that the article references talks about how well psychiatrists engage in collaborative decision-making. And while it's true that some of the more obvious things we're good at, such as asking people if they've understood and asking if they have any questions. The stuff that we don't hit on are these meta-collaborative points, such as starting a consultation with how involved do you want to be in this process? How would you like to receive the information? That kind of stuff. And I totally get how some doctors are like, well, I don't need to ask that. You know, I can tell. But it is the kind of thing where if you get it wrong, then the patient really does not benefit. If the patient wanted to be really involved and you don't take that into account, then you're losing a lot there. So that really made me think, okay, there are definitely ways in which the training program can be adapted for us to progress as clinicians. I think it's important to also express that person-centered care is an ongoing process and while someone at the start of the therapeutic relationship may want to take a more passive approach with regards to engagement or decision making that has a potential to change right and it's important to reevaluate it in case someone says well actually i'm starting to read more about this i'm starting to look more into this and my preferences are changing well absolutely and nowhere is that more important than in psychiatry where people's mental states change and with that never is there more a clear concept of that than the patient who starts involuntary and ends up voluntary there's such a clear change there of power dynamic i have to say power dynamic because at the one end it is a very authoritarian perspective of the clinician treating a patient against their will and heading towards the patient having a lot more say in their treatment and it being a lot more collaborative at all points, obviously respecting the patient, but towards the end, respecting their decision making. And yeah, what well, one concept that I came across was when I worked with Dr. Raj Mohan in rehab psychiatry, where he was working with his patients in collaborative care planning and also where they were starting to lead their own ward rounds and it just makes total sense if you think about it that you give them that sort of agency within their own care it's their care and so I thought that was really forward-looking stuff it makes me think you know yeah actually there are so many areas in which we can do more to be person-centered I can't help but remember medical school oskies with the emphasis and focus on icing exploring patients ideas concerns and expectations i think it is great and it is good that or at least when i did my final oscis that feedback from the patient actors and real patients who came in allowing themselves people who came in and allowed themselves to be examined that that feedback was just as important as 
the feedback from the clinician examiners and that while someone can try and book learn ways of showing person-centered it's always clear who is regurgitating the book learn material and who is actually trying to think practically based on the setting the timing the person in front of them i thought that was a nice little point that professor bod Dave made one more thing that i really did like was the point that it's not only psychiatry in which black and white categorization doesn't work but it also doesn't work in medicine and we like to think that it's clear-cut uh, a certain blood test is above a certain level so we employ a certain intervention anyone who's worked in medicine for even a day can tell you that it's not that simple and that's why i really did like professor bod dave's example of a patient with a sodium of 135 you know you always have to look at the person in front of you see how they are see who they are and think how can i help them and if you can the best way to start to figure that out is by having a dialogue with the person in front of you. Exactly. And that's not unscientific. That's all part of the science, right? And it's just like we were saying, you're getting away from the algorithm of sodium is X thus Y and moving into a more holistic approach. Mm. It's a tricky one. And I know Sibod Dave does talk about not overly relying on the science, but also taking into account individual preferences. But at the same time, when one tries to break down what classically and traditionally many clinicians have called, you know, the art of medicine, the art of psychiatry, when you delineate it and split it into several different definable elements, you are kind of making a science of it in some ways. I mean, some of these factors might be difficult to measure or quantify, but you're making it something that in theory is easier to understand, explain and teach, I think anyway. I think there's like a meta science to this, which is if anyone does this, they need to get away from treatment by algorithm where like nice CKS guidelines. Yeah. Entirely, entirely flowchart driven. But then when you start bringing in things such as the preferences of the person that you're working with and even, you know, considerations such as the best treatment is the treatment that the person is going to want and engage with and not have uh, adverse effects from. Uh, a great example is clozapine, right? Because the common narrative is that we don't start clozapine soon enough in most psychiatric uh, patients with psychosis because clozapine works very well and we delay it. Um, and obviously the guidance being that two antipsychotics would have to have not worked before you start clozapine, but we tend to slog on with about four different antipsychotics and for a very long time when clozapine could have been used earlier. But a lot of people don't want clozapine and clozapine is hard work. It involves frequent blood tests and a lot of monitoring for side effects. And so, yes, algorithmically, clozapine makes sense, but the meta-science of it, which is, let's use the thing that would work best for this particular person who I'm sitting in front of, might point you in a different direction. But it is still a science, right? You're still having to take into account certain things. Absolutely. All of these algorithms ultimately are tools meant to assist clinicians, and they should not become necessarily scripture or something that is followed dogmatically. Whilst in many cases, they will offer the answer that is appropriate in a certain clinical scenario. The second that you follow it to a T and, and don't consider, well, actually, there are 
reasons for patient personal preference with regards to side effects and also monitoring requirements. And recovery goals. Yeah. Right? Like, Absolutely. Like you might have a medication which gets someone to a certain recovery which they're not even looking for. And mm. that's why we need to have these conversations, right? Absolutely. Hammy, you currently work in general medicine. I did spend eight months in general medicine thanks to COVID redeployment. Right. Okay. Well, do you find that to be very person-centered? Well, one need only look at board rounds. And, and Sachin, I'm sure you'll remember this. You'll go through the list of patients. Mrs. A, fractured neck, femur. Mr. C, ongoing constipation and delirium. Usually, the only time that someone's personal life or profession is, is mentioned is when the patient is, well, a retired healthcare professional or a current healthcare professional. And that's time and time again. It's in that context, it's one of the few times that the patient is seen as a person with a story. Well, not only that, but that's just one aspect, right? When do we ever think about the person's country of origin, their culture, their family values, things like this? And you think, oh, why is that worth bringing up? But just remember, when we don't bring those things up, we're technically just treating all the patients as though they're from the same culture or as per our own. Whereas all these things affect your health beliefs and your health aims and desires and goals and all that kind of stuff. And this is partially what person-centered care is about, is that we see people for who they are. And if we're not seeing people for who they are, we're treating them as... The diagnoses. Well, Sachin, I've really enjoyed listening to your discussion with Professor Bodave about his co-authored article. And if you're interested in going away and reading that article, it's available on the BJ Psych International website. And again, the title is Person-Centered Care and Psychiatry, Some Key Perspectives. Once again, I'm Hamilton, and I've been joined by Sachin Shah. Indeed. And we look forward to having you join us for another BJ Psych International interview podcast. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.